Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go through most of verse or chapter 41. We're, we're trying to capture the, the whole of what's happening here. And of course, this is one very long, it's the longest really single narrative in Genesis. And so it's still broken up. Uh, but we're going to look at this section, chapter 40, verse 1 to 4132. I'm not going to read everything. I'll tell you where I'm going to jump because as we'll see, the dreams that are accounted here or recounted here are mentioned three times. So we won't read through all of them. Uh, just for the sake of time. But look with me now in Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word to us. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is his interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and to your place, and, and, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do, do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up on the up out of the Nile rather seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. It was restored to my office, or I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Let's move down to verse 28. This is Joseph now interpreting the dream to Pharaoh. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you now because we need your help to hear your word, to understand your word, that you would speak it to our hearts, that you would instruct our minds. Would you take your word now and make it effective to teach and instruct and correct and exhort and rebuke where necessary, Lord. Help us to see you in your glory through your word proclaimed today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a long passage, but it's a narrative, so it's fairly easy to understand. We don't have to really do a lot of unpacking here because both the description of what happened and the explanation is there. So we'll look briefly as we move quickly through this. It's a story that if you grew up in the church, this is one of the stories you know. It's a story that was common in our Sunday school classes. It's a popular among children. It's in children's storybook Bibles. It's just one of those stories because it's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's not something, it's not the kind of experience, experience that we typically have. You see that the sermon title is A God-Centered Theology. What is all that about? Well, theology is one of those words that you either love or you may find scary. Uh, theology, for some reason, is a word that can be scary to some people, and, and I don't think it should be uh, because theology is just one of many ologies that we have in our lives, and most ologies don't really scare us. 
theology is the knowledge or the study of the knowledge of God. It is that that we know about God, just like the psychology is the study of the psyche or geology is the study of rocks. In simpler terms, we could say that all of these ologies are simply our ideas, our thoughts, our understanding, and our beliefs about the subject. So if we think about it, we, we don't claim to be geologists. Well, some of us do, but one of us at least does. But uh, we, most of us don't, but yet we all know what rocks are. We know what rocks will do. We, we may not understand all that rocks can do or all that they're comprised of, but I was going to say most of us know that if you pick up a rock and throw it at a window, it will break. But we live in Florida, and we have impact windows, and so that's not true. But at least growing up, that was the case. So we have some understanding of rocks, and we live our life according to the fact that rocks can be either frustrating if you're digging, or it can be uh, damaging if you throw it at something delicate or or whatever. But we, we, we live out of that. Well, in the same way, everyone has a theology. Even the atheist has a theology. To say that I believe there is no God is still some knowledge, some indication of who God is or in their mind isn't. So everyone has a theology and everyone lives out of that theology. Again, even if it's agnostic, if it's to say I'm indifferent or I'm not sure, we still live out of that perspective. And so in the practice of living out our theology, particularly as believers All of us have the tendency to lean in one direction or another. We either lean toward a man-centered theology or toward a God-centered theology. A man-centered theology tends to make everything about us. You come to the story of David in the Bible, and the application of the story is, what are the Goliaths in your life that you need to defeat? That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, you may have even heard this. Before, What are the Goliaths that you need to defeat? Is that the intent? Is that why God put that story in his holy word? No, it's not. It takes the story of Joseph, a man-centered theology does, and emphasizes that if you just live a self-disciplined life and avoid temptation, that God will lift you up like Joseph. He'll give you the promotion that you deserve. Just, just be real determined. Be real focused. Be obedient. It takes a story like Esther's and challenges you to fight for your cause like Esther fought for her cause. Be like David, be like Joseph, be like Esther. That is the mantra of a man-centered theology. You see, the focus in a man-centered theology is on our felt needs and then our behavior in response to that. And felt needs are something by description. It's what we feel. It's something that's very relevant to our lives. And so we easily connect. Felt needs, that's not a bad word. We all have felt needs. And we can talk about felt needs. We also all behave a certain way. And we certainly talk about our behavior. But the difference is, in a man-centered theology, they're presented in such a way that you leave thinking that you can save yourself. That you can do the work yourself. That your works will produce some level of righteousness or that your works will appease God. And so when God then doesn't lift you out of the mess that you're in, when he doesn't solve the crisis that you're facing, you begin to wonder, am I not doing it right? Did I not do it well enough? Does God not love me? 
And if you've been under this mindset, a man-centered theology, you know that it ends in frustration. A God-centered theology, on the other hand, rests and trusts in a God who rules over every story and works to accomplish his purposes in all matters and all ways. In other words, where a man-centered theology focuses on your felt needs, your circumstances, and your responses to them, a God-centered theology takes into account that God is still God regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your felt needs, and regardless of your performance. He's still God. He's still ruling. And he is still going to accomplish all of his purposes. Nothing can frustrate his will. And so in this case, every Bible hero of our childhood becomes the servant of the true hero who saves his people. That's the repeating story in Scripture. God is our Savior. God is our Savior. God is our Savior. We have a Redeemer. It's not us. (laughs) It wasn't these Bible heroes. As much as we can look to their character and we can look to their example and we can even say, let's emulate that, that's that's all fine. But that's not where salvation lies. Salvation lies alone with our God. Esther stood up not for her cause, but because she trusted her God. How many times in Esther's life did she trust God and her circumstances didn't change? I don't know, we're not told much about Esther, but I do know about Joseph and David. We have a lot of information about Joseph and David. How many times did they trust their God and say, where are you, Lord? I mean, we read this morning one of the Psalms of David. How long, Lord, will you, when are you going to save me? When are you going to deliver me? Are you going to let me die? You can imagine Joseph, even though it's not recorded, this time that he spent being thrown into the pit by his brothers and then being a slave, now being imprisoned. Now he tastes the chance of maybe being delivered from prison and we see it's two whole years before the the cupbearer remembers him. They trusted God, not because they thought they could do it, but because they knew their lives were in his hands regardless of what their circumstances were. And so now as we begin looking in chapters 40 and 41, we see that God is beginning to lay the groundwork to lift Joseph up, not simply to cause his restoration, but really to bring salvation to many people in the known world at this time. Understand this, that having a God-centered theology is not something that comes naturally. So if you hear me describing the difference between a man-centered theology and a God-centered theology and feel beat up by that because you tend maybe to lean or think toward the man-centered way, that's true for all of us. We all do that. We don't need help in being self-centered. We are self-centered by nature. We make everything about us by nature. It's who we are as humans. And so in order to understand our experience, in order to understand our world, and in order to understand God's revelation to us in Scripture, we have to reframe our thinking to understand who is at the center of our existence. You remember in your history classes when there was a time that everyone thought in our solar system everything revolved around the earth. And you can understand why that was. Because the perspective is when you're standing on earth, Everything seems to be revolving around us. The sun goes by, the moon goes by, the stars go by. That makes good sense until 
it was discovered that no, actually in our solar system, everything rotates around the sun or revolves around the sun. And so that changed everyone's perspective, not just for Earth, but for our understanding of the entire galaxy. And so in the same way, when we when we see our theology reshaped to be God-centered instead of man-centered, it changes our perspective on everything. We see everything in a new light. The text that's before us today does have a theme. It's not just a story. I mean, it is a story about dreams in the future and famines and so forth, but there is a clear theme that emerges, and that is... God's plans will come to pass, that nothing will disrupt his purposes, that nothing will frustrate his will. And this theme resonates especially in the climax of the story, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 41, where Joseph says to Pharaoh, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. He is unequivocal about this. He is clear about this. And then he says again in verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. This is a theme that we see not only in this story, but we've seen it throughout our study of Genesis. And it's a theme that is clear throughout all of Scripture. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And then a passage from the New Testament, which I know I refer back to, well, I've done it more than once, so you could say regularly. But I think this is so important, not not because it brings Christ into the focus of our time, but also because this particular passage speaks to us and our suffering. Two of the apostles had just been brutalized. They had just been persecuted. And after being released, they came back to the church body. And the church together in one voice in Acts 4 prays this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The suffering of Christ was something that didn't happen by chance. It wasn't an accident. It was God's plan to redeem his people. That speaks to us in our suffering, doesn't it? It it, it helps us reframe our suffering. Even when it doesn't make sense and even when it doesn't feel good and even when we just want it to go away, that God is doing something even though we don't understand it. This is the theme that God's people needed to hear as Moses wrote the book of Genesis as they left Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, as they prepared to enter the promised land, as they would later face captivity captivity in Babylon and exile there. And it's the thing that you and I need to hear when we face hardships, when we face things that, that just we can't even believe they're happening, happening, the unthinkable. When we feel trapped, when we feel unable to move, we need to know that God's plans stand forever that he will accomplish all of his purposes and that his promises are true and he will deliver on every one of them. 
In Genesis 40, we have the account of Joseph interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. This is an account not of Joseph's skills or his mystical powers, but of God's omnipotence and providential working over and above Joseph's dire situation and what would soon become a dire situation for the surrounding world. God is at work. There's no indication that he's telling Joseph this. Joseph is living in prison under false accusation. He doesn't know what's about to happen. And so now there are these two men. These are important men in Pharaoh's world. We're not told how they messed up, but whatever they did, it landed them in prison. And this is the same prison that is run by the captain of the guard, somebody we've already been introduced to, Potiphar. And Potiphar is, of course, who Joseph was working for. This is interesting here. Who does Potiphar put in charge to care for these two very important men? But Joseph. It tells us again another indication. You know, I said there were little hints that Potiphar may not have completely believed the accusation his wife made against Joseph because he didn't have him executed. And now here's another indication that Potiphar still sees Joseph favorably because these, again, were important men. You don't just put them in anyone's charge. And so now Joseph is caring for the baker and the cupbearer. Well, on the same night, these two men both have dreams. Clearly, this is no coincidence. The next day, their dejected faces told a story, and Joseph picked up on it. He wanted to know why they were so troubled. In our previous account, we considered how when we're suffering, it can often open the door for temptation. In other words... When we're suffering or when we feel wronged or when we're fighting against bitterness, it's so easy for us to kind of justify not obeying because things aren't going well for me. And we kind of, you know, have a little bit of self-pity and we think, you know, God doesn't love us and and why does does it matter? Why, Why should I even try? Well, another temptation that enters in into the same time when we are going through hardship, when we are suffering, when we're fighting against bitterness, is this indifference to other people. When we are navel-gazing, when we're asking, why me, we lose perspective of those around us. If God doesn't love me, if God doesn't show me good things, then why do I need to care about others? We want other people to know how bad we hurt. We want other people to ask about our sorrows. But Joseph doesn't do this. Instead, he pursues them and asks, why are your faces downcast today? This is, uh, this is difficult medicine for me to swallow because I have dished it out, and I can tell you that I don't like taking it myself. And that is, when you are hurting, serve other people. When you're suffering, Serve other people. When you are fighting against despondency, serve other people. I want to clarify something. I said in the beginning that a man-centered theology focuses on felt needs and behavior, and a God-centered theology focuses on who God is and the fact that he rules and reigns over all things. That doesn't mean we don't talk about behavior. And this is a case where because we trust God, our motivation in serving others is not so God will change his mind and change our circumstances. If you're coming at life with that perspective, you will be frustrated. God is not our tool to be used. He does whatever he pleases. 
See, the benefit of our serving others as we're commanded to do is is us. We're transformed by it. See, it's not just a, a model that we see in the life of Joseph. This is, this is the life of Christ. Think of how Paul summarizes the life of Christ in Philippians 2. Laying down his life for others, right? Consider the needs of others more important than your own. That's a snapshot of how Jesus lived. And this is hard to do when we're suffering. But I would argue that it is transformative when we do this. When we look to the needs of others... It's not just that they're helped, we're helped. We're changed by that. We get outside of ourselves. It's that, uh, I think Tim Keller has this little book, The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. That's an art that we could all benefit from in our own lives, to forget ourselves. It's an indication of spiritual maturity. If you look at the qualifications for the godly woman in Titus 2 or the list of the qualifications for for elder, for for deacon, the church officers, they're focused primarily on character issues which affect then servanthood. It's not that the the godly woman or the godly man has skills. I mean, there are skills. Teaching is, is one of those skills, being able to teach. But the list isn't primarily skills. It's character issues. And I'll tell you this, in terms of my preference... Give me people who know how to serve any day over people who just know stuff. Because I will argue that a true spiritual knowledge, truly understanding what God's Word teaches, results in behavior. It changes the way that we live. We don't behave to earn God's favor, but because God has shown us His favor and grace, we do live differently. And we serve. It is a sign of spiritual maturity. I would say serving others is the fruit of knowing and trusting that God is all-powerful. It is getting outside of ourselves, even getting outside of our suffering, and saying, I know God is in control. I don't understand it. It still hurts. I don't like it. But I'm going to serve others because that's what he's called me to do. That's the example that Christ has set for us. And I would argue that that fruit will transform you. So because Joseph is trusting God, he's not focused on his situation, and he, even though he's in prison, is free to care for others. Here he is. I mean, he could have given up everything, just shrugged his shoulders, said, who cares? But here he is asking these two, why are they so downcast? And then interpreting their dreams, he gives them this explanation in verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God. He's giving God the glory. He's showing them, this is not me, guys. I don't have special skills. I'm not magical or mystical. This is is all up to God. And then God enables him to interpret the dreams. He explains to the cupbearer that Pharaoh would soon restore him. He uses the phrase that he would lift up your head. And that's a phrase that we see used in other places in Scripture to describe being shown favor. And he says in three days this is going to happen. But then he says, only remember me when you're restored. Verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Same word there that his brothers threw him into a pit. This becomes a theme in Joseph's life. Well, the baker hears this interpretation and thinks, okay, good. All right, restored in three days. I can, I can deal with this. Tell me, tell me about my dream. And so Joseph interprets his dream, and he uses the same phrase. 
He says, the Pharaoh will lift up your head. And then you hear that dramatic pause from you. (laughs) That changes everything. The baker is going to be executed. And his body is further going to be desecrated by the birds. Something that was particularly shameful in Egyptian culture. You remember from your history studies, the Egyptians were into embalming, preserving the body even in death. They still find mummies in Egypt. And so this desecration, the birds eating the flesh of this baker's body, was particularly shameful. And then the narrator moves us forward to that day, three days later, when the dreams came to fruition. The cupbearer is restored and the baker was hanged. But then the narrator tells us that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. So here this foundation's been laid. Joseph... He, he, he interprets the dream. He, he, God gives him the insight to see that these, the, 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 the uh, cupbearer is about to be restored. And he says, remember me. And maybe in that moment he had that, just that hint of hope that, okay, now Pharaoh's going to hear my story. The, that, that, you know, I, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to get out of this place. He didn't do it in order to have that to happen, but he sees that as a possibility by planting that seed. But the narrator tells us it's going to be two whole years. As if Joseph hasn't waited long enough already. As if Joseph hadn't endured enough already. He has gone through so much wrongdoing. And now two whole years. Two whole years. Well, the author points out that it's two whole years to not only emphasize the amount of time that passes, but also that it's two whole years, meaning that it's Pharaoh's birthday again. So he now is dreaming on his birthday. And as ruler of the superpower Egypt, the significance of this is that as the pharaoh and having these dreams on his birthday, it means this is significant. Pay attention. This is not only going to impact a person, this is going to impact, and really not even just the country, but because of of Egypt's abundance, they fed much of the surrounding world. This is going to impact the entire region. The dreams are told and retold, first in the passage by the narrator, then by Pharaoh, and finally as they're interpreted by Joseph. The repetition is here for emphasis that we don't get distracted into thinking that anything is happening by coincidence. Things don't happen by coincidence. I mean, that's man's perspective when we say something happens by coincidence, but we know God is sovereign, that nothing is happening by chance. And Joseph, again, drives the point home in verse 32. The thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God's going to do this. Both the bountiful years and the years of famine, both are by the hand of God, and they're for His purpose. Think about that. The bountiful years and the years of famine, both by the hand of God and for His purpose. In the dreams, we see the number seven mentioned 28 times. The the word famine appears 12 times. It's highlighted twice as severe. The word all is attached to it, showing that the impact is going to not only affect Egypt, but all of the surrounding area. And the dream begins with Pharaoh standing on the banks of the Nile. The Nile is significant. This is the life source for Egypt. And the fruit of its benefit, the, the, the produce that, that that water supplied, benefits the entire surrounding world. And so the focus on the Nile is to draw attention to the fact that this is going to have a huge impact. Pharaoh sees the seven cows, attractive and plump, come up out of the river. 
And then they're followed by these ugly and thin cows, which then ate up the seven attractive cows, and Pharaoh wakes up. You know what it's like when you wake up from a dream, right? I mean, we dream, supposedly we dream most of the night or all night. Some nights I don't think I dream, but who knows? But we, we often don't remember our dreams. But if you have a dream that wakes you up, you typically remember it. It's a way of etching it into your memory. It startles you out of your sleep. And this is what happened with Pharaoh. He's going to remember this dream. And then he falls back asleep and he has the second dream. This time it's the, the seven ears of grain, plump and good first, followed by seven more blighted by the east wind, which then swallow up the seven plump full ears. And again, he wakes up. He's not going to forget this. The next morning, the text tells us that he was troubled, and so he called for his magicians, his wise men. Someone come, tell me, what does this dream mean? And verse 8 tells us there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And it's at this point that one of his right-hand men, the cupbearer, is prompted by God to remember Joseph. And how does he phrase his remembrance? I remember my offenses today, he tells Pharaoh. What were his offenses? Was he remembering the offenses against Pharaoh that landed him in prison? No. He's remembering the offense against Joseph and that he failed to remember him. You see, Joseph had interpreted his dream. Joseph had told him, you're going to get out of here. In three days, you're going to be restored. And so he tells Pharaoh about his forgetting Joseph and about what Joseph had done for him. And Pharaoh immediately summons Joseph. And you see this quickening of the narrative as they they run and get Joseph. They get him cleaned up. He gets shaven. He gets new clothes to wear. And before you know it, Joseph, who had just been in prison, is now standing before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh recounts the two dreams. And at this point, and in the second When Pharaoh retells the dreams, he calls them a dream. He's already aware that the two dreams are connected, that they're in essence one message. And in verse 25, Joseph confirms this to him. He says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. See, Joseph has a God-centered theology. He he highlights that the sovereign creator, not, not, not the God of Pharaoh, the sovereign creator is about to do and act with certainty. He is going to do it now. And then he explains the meaning that the seven plump cows, the seven plump ears of grain are seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. Things are going to be really, really good. And then after that will come seven years of famine and things are going to be really, really bad. Famine that will consume the land. And then he adds that the doubling of the dream, the reason you had two of these is that God, it's fixed by God. This thing is fixed by God. That's what Joseph says. He is about to do it. So none of the king's wise men, none of the king's uh, uh, magicians had been able to interpret the dream. But now this Hebrew slave and prisoner had told Pharaoh exactly what was about to happen. Joseph doesn't know it yet, but God is about to liberate him. From prison, he's going to raise him up from the position of, you remember he was a slave, then he was a prisoner. I mean, he is at rock bottom, and he is about to be elevated to a position of rule, a position of leadership. 
And here's where our God-centered theology really matters. This is where the rubber meets the road. You see, if we come at this text with a man-centered theology, you might think to yourself, if I obey God, then God will get me out of the mess that I'm currently in. He'll get me out of the pit. He'll, he'll get me out of jail. That, that's what I want. I want out of this crisis. I want out of this mess. If I, if I just be like Joseph, then that's what will happen. Or if I'm self-disciplined and focused enough, if I'm determined, then I can change my circumstances. Or, or better yet, I can change people around me to deliver me out of this crisis. Or if I just believe enough, then God will make a great leader out of me or give me a favorable position or maybe even fame. That message, unfortunately, you can hear that message on your television. You can hear that message in many churches. That is not the promise of the gospel. God doesn't promise you a life free from difficulty. He doesn't teach us that our self-discipline or obedience will save us. He hasn't enabled any of us to change other people's hearts. What Joseph needed, what you need, what I need, is an all-powerful Savior. One who can save us from ourselves, from our sin. You see, Joseph's confidence was not in his abilities, in himself, in his skills, but in his God. The 17th century English pastor Jeremy Taylor wrote this, It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. It is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent, all-powerful. Joseph's confidence wasn't in his circumstances, but in the one who was powerful to rule over those circumstances. And so for us today, as well as for the people of God at the time of the writing, what they needed to hear, what we need to hear, is that we need hope that there is someone ruling and reigning over and above, in front of and behind and beneath all of our circumstances. That, this, that these things actually mean something and matter something to someone. That despite the pain, despite the questions, despite the disappointments, despite the wounds that won't seem to heal, that there is one who holds all things together and is working to bring beauty from ashes. Just as Joseph didn't despair because he knew his helper was all-powerful, even so we should not despair because we know that our God is on his throne Mighty to save. This is so true, not just as we suffer personally, but as we witness things that are happening in our world. We can get consumed by world events. We can get consumed by politics. We can get consumed by what we're fed every day from the media to the point that we can live in anxiety and fear or anger or bitterness or fill in the blank. We need to know that we serve a God who is on His throne. He hasn't left the throne. He is still ruling and reigning, no matter what the television tells us. Jesus said to His disciples, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek His kingdom? To seek His righteousness? Well, there is only one way to enter the kingdom of God. And there is only one way to be righteous before a holy God. It is by faith in Jesus alone. 
Just as God lifted up Joseph out of his suffering and would soon elevate him to a position that would save many people from this famine, even so God lifted up his son, the suffering servant, who came willingly to die in our place, but he didn't remain in the grave. See, God has lifted up Jesus as Savior, not from famine or pestilence or storm, but Savior of our greatest problem. He has saved us from sin and death. That is the anchor of the soul that we need. As we face difficulties, we need something to hold on to, something that transcends our circumstances, that is outside of them. All of us in this room, I would guess, have lived long enough to know that life hurts. Life is hard. There are unexpected things, things that leave you questioning, things that leave you with just your mouth hanging open. Why? What? This? In some of our moments of greatest difficulty, there's a passage Leslie and I have come to again and again. I want to read it to you today from John 6. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In difficulty, in sorrow, in pain, in questioning, where else can we go? When we're at the end of our rope and losing our grip, to whom can we run? When we have no answers, no words, only tears, where is our hope? Cling to the Holy One of God, our Savior Jesus, who has the very words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the anchor of our soul. That regardless of the circumstances of our lives, regardless of how how things are unfolding, or Lord, even regardless of how we have failed, that you are still on your throne. That the things that are happening are according to your will and your plan and that you are indeed weaving them together, working all things together for good. Lord, give us eyes to see as we look back at your faithfulness, not just in the pages of Scripture, but throughout time, we see that you have been faithful. You have never ceased to be faithful to your people. As we look back in our own lives, Lord, and we see your goodness May we continue to trust you as we then look forward. That we know you have the very words of eternal life. You are the Holy One. Cause us to trust in you completely, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.